Apple Knocker Radio. All right, Carl, thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it. Um, after reading your book, uh, Source Magic, I've been watching some of your lectures and your interviews as well and really fascinating stuff. I watched the one on uh, Alistair Crowley and uh, Rudolf Steiner last night. That was really, really interesting. But um, so speaking about your book, Source Magic, um, all right, it's a collection of various essays on numerous topics, but there's there's a core thesis at play in, in, in the book. So for the people who haven't read the book yet, and by the way, viewers, I recommend you buy the book. It's right there. It's an excellent book. Thank but you. Um, could, could you uh, please explain a little bit about the, what the core thesis is, the core idea? Yeah, I, I seem to, uh, I write in the preface of, of this book, the Source Magic book, that uh, I seem to be almost, uh, you know, pathological. I keep thinking about these magical themes and writing about them from a perspective that I have come to call a magical anthropological uh, perspective. And it's also the occultural uh, perspective, which is, of course, a merger between the occult and culture. It's very interesting stuff. And it, it sort of really preoccupies my uh, my daily life. I keep thinking about these things. And then I write essays. I'm invited to, to lecture at different places. And then usually what I do after a while, uh, and I'm quite productive, so they amass pretty uh, quickly. And then I turn them into books like the one uh, that you have there, Source Magic. And it's, so it's basically an anthology of essays and lectures. Uh, and uh, at times I can sort of, I wouldn't say doubt myself, but it, uh, I can feel an inclination of doubting, you know, does this make sense? Mm-hmm. But then when I read them, especially in this kind of anthologized format, I think it does because there is, as you say, a, a red thread. There is something there that connects everything. And that's my belief, uh, which is kind of like a, a core belief that uh, we carry from early on, like, you know, from the very first years of being actual uh, homo sapiens, we have done things and acted in ways uh, that have strengthened us as individuals in terms of survival. Also the little tribe, little community that eventually down the line grew and grew and became more abstracted and, and, uh, um, I guess, intellectual in a way. And that's this thing that we seem to have um, an inherent need of transcending our rational mind. And, mm-hmm. and what that means is that, you know, you can't solve a problem with an approaching predator, an approaching lion or a mammoth, whatever it is, by reasoning or, or uh, figuring out a model. You just have to act really fast, come up with some good things and, you know, not be too rational about it. And then, of course, to deal with the fear and inherent angst that these people had, our ancestors, uh, in the darkness, in the big forest or the jungle, you know, there's so many lurking dangers. And you feel a need to, we have to have some, you know, extra help with this. So you create this thing called forces or gods, uh, which I argue is stuff we have inside us already. But we need to connect with that, with that extra kind of layer of, uh, again, something that helps us make fast uh, decisions in order for us to survive. And that down the line, uh, that developed, became more and more, you know, ritualized, became more magical. Uh, Some would say shamanic. I think that's a pretty good word because we have indigenous shamanic cultures uh, that still live in this uh, frame of mind. It's not book learning that they have. It's Mm -hmm. like oral traditions and, and just very living traditions. So you can argue that, yeah, sure, before it was called um, uh, written historical times, we can only speculate, you know, look at little shards of archaeology and stuff. But since we have these cultures that actually still exist and have been, you know, the way they are, uh, they've been like that for thousands of years. So it is very likely to assume that whatever they're doing, we all did uh, uh, a long time ago. Hmm. And as you know, we, we talk about genetics, we talk about how we have our traits, uh, biological traits, personality traits, it's all moving along in the, in the gene pool, in our chromosomes. Then, of course, whatever we have experienced and whatever our ancestors have experienced has also traveled in the genetic mass. So that kind of uh, primordial, primal need 
to transcend the rational mind in a kind of a ritual sense uh, in order to survive, I believe is an absolutely integrated part of our psyches, our beings. Uh, and that I would say is like the fundament of my, I don't know, perspective that I then build uh, things upon, specifically by looking at contemporary things like, you know, pop culture and see how this relates to, to, uh, to this core that I believe that we all have. Yeah, I think the, I think something that people, an interesting discussion is when you, when you explain that thesis, the way that that would apply to art and culture I think isn't, I don't think that's too hard of a logical connection to make, but where it gets interesting is the science and how it, yeah. and how this um, human proclivity has yeah. actually led to what we think of as hard science today, which we think of as a purely rational, purely logical yeah. construct. But you make a really interesting case that that's not, that's not where it was birthed from. It was not birthed from logical processes. It was no. birthed from, uh, and like a magical process, a, well, yeah. a consciousness process, uh, process. But could you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it sort of uh, you can look at it from from many different uh, angles. But one of the most uh, interesting things I think is to actually talk to uh, scientists or or people who believe in the you know almost religion of scientism in a way, mm -hmm. which is like you have such a faith in statistics that it takes on uh, a cultic you know, uh, proportion. Uh, however, everything that's done empirically, and I'm not knocking any science, I'm all for it, and the empirical method in order to, to see what actually really works uh, in application and implementation. Uh, however, uh, they seem to have a hard time leaving their kind of rigid uh, tunnel vision thing uh, about where ideas come from. They all know that they have had like quirky, crazy ideas, maybe even ideas that they haven't been daring to tell their colleagues about, you know. But but behind every great idea that's been proven by the empirical method, there is wild, speculative, uh, irrational, intuitive uh, movements in the mind and in the thinking. It's not cogitation, it's intuition. And um, uh, the most beautiful question there is, what if, you know, what if you take these elements and mix them together? Um, the, the, the peers might not accept it until it's been churned through the empirical uh, machinery. Um, but that doesn't change the, uh, the fact that everything, all the ideas that have great, made great changes in human evolution, human culture, comes from this sphere, which I would call, you know, a, a magical sphere. Because it's, it's, it would be too... I don't know, denigrating in a way to the great magic to just simply call it irrational because it isn't. Magic ha also has something else. It has an appreciation of life. It's very life-affirming, life-enhancing, and it has this sort of daredevilish attitude of as if, uh, what if, you know, let's do this. Let's, let's uh, create these forces and call upon them. And, you know, oh, so we he want to heal this uh, uh, sick person. Uh, I'm going to travel to, to see my, you know, totem or power animal and see if it can help out. It's like a big flux of, of energies moving back and forth in a pursuit of a solution to a very distinct problem. And of course, everyone loves a problem solver. Uh, but in our culture, it needs to almost come from like a university or a clinical lab uh, or anything like that to, to be, I don't know, validated in a way. But still, you have these, these uh, people who can, you know, uh, heal people at a distance or just be very inspiring to people to deal with their own trauma or problems. Um, and it works on so many different um, uh, fields in, in our culture. And when I say our culture, I don't mean specifically the Western one. It's like, you know, in, a, in the human cultures. Oh, right. There's always that element. And there's always the magic there in, in every culture. It just mm -hmm. takes on different forms. It's been treated differently. I would say the harshest treatment has been in the monotheistic uh, religions and those cultures, uh, whereas in, um, let's call it the, the polytheistic ones, usually have much more lenience or, or liberal attitudes towards uh, crazy rituals, colorful endeavors, uh, working with the mind as such. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and just uh, 
you know, uh, accepting the fantastic capacity of the human mind. And, and of course, not only alone, but in com communication with uh, and conversation with other human minds. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's um, one of the uh, key things is that magic is something extra. It can be very hard to, to sort of um, explain. I think at one point I had one definition that is that magic is like a, a neutral mind frame that allows for all the definitions of magic to pass through. Mm. You know, So it's like uh, one that accepts uh, and realizes that we can't really nail this down to some kind of formula. Alistair Crowley tried, you know, magic is the science and art of, of uh, causing change to occur in conformity with will. Mm. But in that sense, he sort of, in my mind, sort of debased it a little bit. He made it into a rational process without taking into account the great powers of the psyche, without taking into account emotional aspects um, and all these things that make up for human human individual being. Hmm. It seems like a lot of that might just be the, the very human impulse. That's one of the things I appreciated about your lecture about Crowley and Steiner was that you respect both of them, both of their minds, but you still deal with them as human beings and you refuse mm -hmm. to kind of like um, idolize them. And yeah. I, I like think it's possible that um, Crowley is attempting to make it this strict kind of science was an attempt to be respected or at least taken seriously by, by mainstream people in a way he might not have otherwise been if he didn't couch yeah. it in those terms. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think uh, it was a brave attempt. And it was certainly, uh, it was in the zeitgeist, it was in the, in the times, because there were so many breakthroughs going on in, in science, in, in physics, in biology, in psychology was like booming. There were all of these approaches of um, looking at smaller and smaller particles and trying to formularize. That was sort of the name of the game. And of course, I think, uh, as you say, he wanted to not be looked upon as a, uh, you know, a crazy magician with wands and stuff, although he waved them around, you know. <laughs> right. but, still, but still, uh to have some kind of system, he created great systems that are very, very usable. Uh, but I think also it sort of it misses uh it's a brave attempt, but it misses the mark. Uh in the sense that it becomes too much. It becomes almost too rational and mm. too disregarding of the let's call it the mind-blowing aspects of magic, because they, they are important too. And they are, in my theory, um, absolutely crucial because they're part of this transcendence that gives you the insights that you cannot get by strict cogitation, mm. you know, by strict logic, by strict um, causal thinking. Yeah, so there, there, I want to get back into a big picture item, but um, while we're quickly talking about Crowley, who you do mm. also discuss in the book, yeah, um, <clears throat> there's a point that you make that I think is really interesting because obviously Crowley and Thelema they remain very controversial to this day, and um, I think to some extent it's it's understandable because he was always projecting kind of a very dark, not always, often projecting a very dark kind of sinister kind of feel. But it's interesting to hear people such as yourself and others um, who are interested in the subject, but you don't look at it as a dark, a dark thing, right? And you talk about how, like any spiritual system, and that's not to marginalize, but I'm not saying like it, it can be reduced to just like any other system, but like any other system, mm. that it can be a very powerful tool for personal self-transformation. Yes. And I that's a way that I rarely hear people talk about it right because you even have the people who are pro thelema there's a lot of people who are maybe a little bit unhinged and are, are all for the mm -hmm. you know the babylon working kind of thing yeah. and and then you have the ants the people who are just so anti they're going to look at it as the manifestation of satan no matter what yeah you look at it you you pre present it in a way that it's a, a tool for personal transformation and I was wondering if you could talk about that both specifically to Thelema and generally in spiritual processes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I think also that that um, when you're young and you're looking for these cool things, you know, 
um, controversial or or uh, something that terrifies mommy and daddy. Uh, but you know, you usually delve into these uh, topics and the occult, and and most of it is, of course, just like you know, speculative hogwash. And then you have because we have such a wild, big market now of of good literature, also and good editions of Crowley and and many other. You know, I would say, you know, almost contemporary writers. Let's call them modern day writers. Uh, and and um, there you realize that you, you get enchanted by the magic. You get sort of lured in, fascinated by the glamour of rituals and the, the systems, the planetary systems and the elemental systems and basically the hocus pocus aspects of it. But um, when you are growing up, and I did, I was in that system for for. Uh, for 30 years in the Crowleyan mm. system. And the, the thing is that uh, it takes a while, but if you're a critically thinking person, you realize, well, this is connected to something else. It's not mm. just a hocus pocus and Crowley system. This is a philosophy of will, you know, it's Thelema, means will. Um, and you, then you, you realize, whoa, is, hasn't there been other people <laughs> talk about this? Of course, it's Nietzsche, you know, before Nietzsche, oh, it, right. Schopenhauer, you know, it's the philosophy of will, basically from a, you know, pretty elaborate, uh, not strictly German, but Central European uh, philosophical schools uh, that are at the core of this. Uh, so if you go back and look at, at Nietzsche, of course, there you have uh, absolutely brutal incentive to individuate, to become your own. Uh, to to discard everything and and uh, peel off all the layers in kind of an aggressive Buddhist way in a way you know uh, peel off and get to the jewel and the lotus as mm. they say uh, and uh, Schopenhauer was of course uh, very interested in Indian religion and philosophy there's a lot of he was uh, enamored by by uh, the polytheism and wisdom of, of Hinduism mm. uh, so there are those strains much earlier than Crowley but we probably did was probably at the you know the right time the right place uh, and he enchanted people glamorized people by all this magical you know stuff and that's that's very good the stuff is useful if you realize that it is methods rituals uh, psychodrama uh, things that can help you program yourself to become you know, uh, more of the person that you want to become. And again, there you have it, it's the Nishian, it's to become. That's, it's all about becoming something. Mm. Uh, so you, we can trace that to, to uh, philosophers of a much clearer disposition than Crowley's uh, mind. Uh, however, without the magical trappings, and they can be attractive and they can absolutely be useful. Uh, but if we look at, you know, what emerged uh, after Crowley, meaning basically after the Second World War, and you have, uh, you know, the hippies uh, being enamored by the Eastern stuff, and then you have the harsh 70s, and you have chaos magic and the Temple of Psychic Youth, and, and uh, many other things that sort of carry on the philosophy of will, uh, but try to find a different methodology to sort of break away in a way from Crowley. Crowley wasn't, isn't old hat, it was very, very new hat, at the beginning of the previous century, uh, but he now he seems to be <laughs> a little bit old hat, you know, because it's, it's that classical Western ceremonial system. Uh, whereas uh, I think kids today uh, are probably working with, uh, you know, mimetic meme magic and, you mm. know, TikTok magic and using whatever platform is there. And that's absolutely natural. And that for me reinforces my theory or my thesis is that uh, every generation will work with what's available to uh, work their magic, reach the transcendence, communicate the network, all exchanging information in order to survive. Hmm. Uh, and now that everything is moving along so quickly, so rapidly, there are new te technological feats like every month, every week, and we are just like little, you know, um, I don't know, tufts of grass in, the, in this technological wind, we have to adapt to whatever is going on. And I guess it's fine, uh, as long as it's connected to some kind of usage that is pro-individuation. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, it's sort of sedentary, it's, it's entertaining and sort of sedating. 
um, when you take in things too passively and you're not incentivized to do something with your own life. Mm. Uh, but that, that's true of every culture and every sort of major movement has, right. has that uh, pitfall uh, possibility. So I think that, um, um, yeah, what was, the que- what was the original question? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it was a great answer. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's just like... Um, I'm, I'm so, um, uh, you know, I just every day I have this realization or, or uh, insight that we're living in such incredibly interesting times, um, probably unsurpassed in that sense because of this rapidity. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's because uh, the survival instinct on a huge planetary scale oh, right, has right. been activated, you know, uh, and that's why we have to communicate faster. Ergo, the internet, we have to exchange information, internet, we have to wake up on an individual level, then you have this sort of uh, mass market yoga in a way, which I don't see as a bad thing at all. Uh, You have the sort of the ayahuasca thing. And at the same time, you have the old, uh, you know, uh, necrotic structures of the superpowers, the empires, uh, trying to do the final battle, Hmm. Uh, basically, I don't know, uh, slowly dying, I would say. And this is like, you know, them shaking, shaking off the, the uh, last remnants of life within them. But well, I considering think some of the alternatives, that might be the most optimistic outcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Leah, let's hope so. But I mean, uh, on an individual level, and again, you know, uh, this is uh, worldwide, I think the only way forward is to um, really encourage an individuation process. And that's something that, that you know, you could say comes from uh, Carl Jung. He talked about individuation, but it's not only from him. There's always someone uh, earlier. And I think Nietzsche seems to have been like a huge uh, critical mass point that just, you know, went from um, a black hole to a supernova in a way and has affected culture and philosophy and thinking and magic uh, ever since, since then. And this thing is that, um, and of course, it's true for for Thelema and all the major magical systems that you have to become who you are. You have to to work on that and not get lost in this maze of of uh, rituals and ceremonies uh, or meditations. Uh, that makes no sense to work with that unless it gives you real solid insight into who you are and who you want to be. You know, mm. and that, those are the most magical things. Uh, the one can work with. Plus, also, something that is mentioned uh, in the book, I think it's the last chapter, this thing, memento mori, you have to realize that you're mortal. You, you, time is, um, you know, time will be up one day, and then hopefully you can look back if you can be sentient in that moment and think, whoa, I had a good life in the sense I, I tried to work with myself and become a much better uh, person, you know, find a life of meaning. Or you can be disgruntled and neurotic and die very unhappy. But I think that's one of the most, I don't know, uh, beautiful, magical mottos or, or sayings, memento mori, you know, remember immortality. And then there's the other one. They're so simple and so banal because we've heard them so much. But, you know, the, what it said above the entrance to the oracle at Delphi, it said, uh, know thyself. Right. And those two things, for me, it's like, you don't need much more than that. You know, you, you can enjoy the hocus pocus and you can work with, within a system that's good. It's like going to school, you know. You, you, don't, you don't love all the subjects at school, uh, but uh, if the educa- education as such is good, it will one day make sense why you're learning about these things. But the main thing remains, you have to be true to yourself and know yourself and you have to realize that time is one day up. So you better make it a meaningful, meaningful life. Amen to that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the uh, there's a I wanted you mentioned something that I want to come back to a, a very interesting question, but I also just wanted to ask or uh, share that there's mm-hmm. also been like a quite a I don't know if explosion that might be a little dramatic, but there's been quite an uptick of interest back back into Rudolf Steiner, anthroposophy and theosophy. Yeah. They've mm-hmm. all kind of reemerged and people are taking a big part of it, I think, was Steiner's The Age of Eremon, because you could easily look at the time that we're in and, and feel like this is the age of Eremon. Yeah. And so it gives him like a prophetic power. 
But um, there's a lot of people who are taking his ideas, particularly the, the Aramonic thing, yeah. and um, looking at modern events and, and framing it within them, which is it's just really interesting to watch. I, I follow a lot of it because I, I do love the theosophy, anthroposophy, Steiner. I, I, yeah. urge it, I enjoy all that stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, you're completely correct. And I think that uh, everyone needs to have, just like you know, you and I, are, we're speaking in English now because it's a language that we both understand, right? And then people from different cultures, they have their languages, but we also have the language of uh, the system, the system that will help us individuate. And we could be, you know, uh, Mormons, or we could be Thelemites, or we could be Satanists, or we could be Anthroposophists. You know, we all have, feel an inclination to join something because of some kind of resonance there. And that's absolutely beautiful, as long as the system itself isn't, you know, derogatory or, or vampiric or whatever. Um, but one thing that ties in this these particular examples with what's called occulture is of course you know the huge uh, success of uh, the Swedish uh, painter Hilmar Klint you know uh, constantly uh, an exhibition touring somewhere in the world and it was the most uh, visited most successful show of the Guggenheim in New York ever mm. when it was on wow. uh, 2018 2019 and it was like who could have foreseen that you know, because she was just a, like an occult lady who she was totally in love with Rudolf Scheiner mm-hmm. and, and she painted and stuff. But he told, I, I, don't, I don't think he was too interested in women or, or love in that sense. He was much more spiritual guy. But anyway, she was in love with him and she went to see him. And he said that um, uh, she should maybe focus on like the life of plants because she had already begun working her abstracted uh, paintings, like more spiritual abstracted paintings. And uh, maybe that was too, um, I don't know, abstracted for Steiner. I don't know. But anyway, so in the wake of Hilmar Klint's amazing, huge successes right now, people talk about Steiner. It's not the other way around, right? Mm. <laughs> people, of course, you know, can find Steiner in other, other ways. But it's amazing that that has had a resurgence. So people talk right. about you know, um, Waldorf schooling and, and the farming methods and all these things, basically because Hilmar Klint has become the beacon uh, or the umbrella under which all of these things are now discussed. Mm. It's, it's fascinating. And there you have it, how culture can become that, um, uh, well, beacon is a good word. It can become a beacon to contain a lot more than meets the eye. You know, uh, you can see a painting by him and you say, well, yeah, it's beautiful. And then you read about it or you hear, you know, some people, knowledgeable people talk about it and say, well, this is about that. And she was instructed by these astral masters, paint these huge paintings, you know, for the temple, um, which she turned into a reality, yet she was also smart enough or they had instructed her well so that she said, nothing can be done with these until 20 years after I'm dead. Hmm. And she, I think, died, died in the mid-40s. So in the mid-60s, the family and stuff started looking at this thing. It was still too modern at the time. And, and, but then gradually, there were more and more shows. And now she's uh, really uh, a big thing. Hmm. Um, and it was also very well preserved. She made so many paintings. So it's like a gold mine for people on, in that um, circuit or that scene, you know, it could just travel indefinitely. But the interesting thing is she never shied away from her interests. She was uh, arranging seances. She was together with a little group of women uh, who worked with spiritistic and theosophic ideas. And this was all integrated in the art. And the art is now what's sending out mm-hmm. these signals. It's, That's it's, amazing. It's like, High magic, high magic. Totally. Yeah, and that, that feeds exactly into um, something I really wanted to ask you about, because first I want to explain anybody watching this, that your book and you in general, you are a, a very systematic and rational thinker, because I'm about to ask to go to maybe some irrational places. So, um, so I want to make clear to everybody, I'm taking us here and I'm asking Carl, I want to know Carl's thoughts on this, but um, because really your book, I think your book could work in a a purely materialistic fashion. Somebody could be a pure materialist 
And they would really only have to be invested in the idea of genetic memory being able to pass along. And, mm-hmm. and your hypothesis, I think, would work in a materialist fashion mm-hmm. if you just accepted that there's like a memory that flows with the, with the DNA. Yeah. But I'm not a materialist, although I'm like Robert Anton Wilson said, I don't believe in anything, but I look at it and I think it's most yeah. likely that we live in an idealist universe, that there is it's a whole universe of consciousness. And so the reason why uh, the question I want to ask is earlier you mentioned, you know, Nietzsche came along and Nietzsche just seemed to bring in this explosion of consciousness that got people to change their thinking. You're just talking about this painter right now who came along and there's this explosion, the Steiner explosion and there's Crowley. Mm-hmm. Everybody's being interested in these things that 20 years ago had maybe this many people were interested. Yeah. In. And so the idea that is put forth in books like the secret history of the world, but also in Steiner's work in general is that mm-hmm. the birth of, and I'm saying this for the audience, cause I'm pretty sure you, you already know this. Like when reality was created, it was set in motion, this, this sea of consciousness. And there was a very specific design for humanity and where we were going. And through the course of time, there are periodic, per- periodic, periodic periods, there are periods of um, explosions in consciousness that uh, create these just things turn left and right. And all of humanity starts to pivot towards a new thing. And then, you know, within 20, 30 years, human consciousness as a whole, well, not there's always going to be differences, but as a majority changes. And I'm wondering, because your book fits so perfectly in with that idea. And if you're willing to go on that, uh, you know, imagination adventure, um, what, what do you think about that? Do, do you ever consider that as a possibility for the mechanism behind these things? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. And again, you know, uh, survival is um, uh, a key to this because uh, if uh, I'm a strong believer, <laughs> believer, I accept the natural sciences <laughs> and I, I believe in the natural sciences and I believe in nature most of all. And I do believe that uh, Darwin was um, right and Linné was right, you know, in their rational structuring of looking at, uh, I guess it's like, it's not logical progression, but it's biological uh, progression and, and why these things happen. And of course, as we know, uh, there could be huge extinctions having to do with, let's call it macro disasters, uh, you know, uh, volcanic eruptions that sort of create so much smoke that it sort of kills everything in that region. Um, however, if un- under good circumstances, you know, um, changes happen because change is needed. You know, uh, if there is one little species, they're used in to live in their paradisical harmony, and then comes predators from somewhere else, you know, they have to change their behavior or they will become, you know, food for the predators and the predators will take over their paradise. And, and um, if we look at it, not as a singular instance, but something going on over a long period of time, you know, a la Darwin's uh, and also later, later scientists, um, you know, assumptions, uh, then these changes happen in the genetic material because of changes in behavior. You know, it, it's strongly linked. And that, again, survival of the fittest, the fittest to what? Well, the fittest to survive because they adapt to the situation at hand uh, in the fastest possible way. And that trait, whatever they came up with in the moment, um, probably from some epiphany or working together in a chaotic moment, uh, then it's uh, moved on. And the kids who adapt to this quickly will survive and have uh, kids who are more likely to survive, etc. It's really a kind of simple process. Uh, and I do believe that's how things work. So, mm-hmm. and, and it also reinforces my thesis in a way, uh, because all of the things that you know, we talk casually about the fight or flight instinct, the instincts specifically. But what are they? Well, they are just traits that we have uh, taught ourselves uh, along, you know, let's call it linear history or whatever you want to call it, you know, along with uh, time. Uh, And we are today very refined, uh, very sort of meta-sentient beings because we can talk about these things and speculate about these things, uh, very unlikely that other species 
uh, do that. They, they're just still on the survival level. But we have that um, uh, you know, capacity for abstraction uh, and uh, thereby science also, you know, really meticulously picking things apart and looking at what it is, you know. I mean, I can't see my genes. I guess in some kind of mechanical uh, electronic tool, you can look at genetic material. I mean, we've seen images of it, so someone can actually see it and, and take pictures of it. And they say that this is it. This is a chromosome. You know, I've never seen one. I've seen pictures of it. Uh, I've never seen, you know, um, uh, other miniature or mic microscopically small. Uh, I've never seen an atom. But we have all seen the co what the conglomeration looks like. You know, what the genetic material, the genetic material of me looks like this and it speaks like this. Uh, and I uh, come from a long line of, of ancestors, as do we all. And at some, you know, primor prim primordial time, we will have ancestors in common. Mm -hmm. uh, and the same thing with, with the atomic, you know, I can see material objects here on my desk. And I know because someone has been, you know, picking things apart and looking, looking closer and closer and closer and say that this is the, you know, uh, uh, atomic uh, uh, composite of this and this and this. Um, and and uh, I accept that. Mm. that. That said, I think that, again, we are in such interesting times because it seems that we can either make uh, very intelligent, hyper-intelligent decisions, the most intelligent decisions we have ever made in our history, mm. uh, or we can wait a little bit and be forced to make... Uh, decisions within chaos and, and you know, uh, really danger and possible extinction and stuff like that. So in that sense, um, this has never happened before because at other extinctions, I don't think they had the similar capacity of amassing data, evaluating mm -hmm. data, and then communicating. It was all firsthand sensual knowledge uh, and uh, it gives us an advantage, but it seems we're also at a disadvantage because whatever we have created that's so great, we seem to be uh, absolutely adamant at destroying. And it's remarkable. <laughs> I, I agree. You, you talk about the seemingly suicidal impulse of humanity in, in source magic quite a bit. Mm -hmm. are, are you familiar at all with Rupert Sheldrick? Uh, yes, I haven't read too much, but I'm, I'm, I'm familiar, yeah. He, he just has um, an interesting idea about how the role of genes is overrated. And he has proposed this idea of uh, uh, fields of morphic resonance, I think is what he mm -hmm. frames them. But um, that he just posits the idea that they are, these fields are more responsible for um, carrying on traits um, of all kinds than mm -hmm. the genes themselves. He thinks the role right. of genes is overrated. Uh, he yeah. doesn't discount it. He just thinks yeah. that it's it's overrated. Yeah, um, but then then maybe we can argue that that one of these fields is is uh, culture, for instance. Right, right. Well, that that's uh, exactly exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I accept that absolutely, you know, because uh, of course it's not just like my little genes telling me to act in a certain way. I mean, we're all social animals, we need each other to survive. So, of course, there you have human interaction, that's one thing. And then you have extended culture, what people create sometimes and quite often not even knowing what they're doing. If you talk about art, you know, uh, because it's supposed to be an intuitive, creative process where we bring something out from within. Um, and w why do people do that? Well, it's completely irrational. It makes no sense, you know, but still it's such an integrated part of, of our life and uh, being human. Mm -hmm. It's a human trait. And therefore, I think, uh, and I would argue that it, it does have a function. It's a very important function. And that is to be either some kind of, you know, mirror, a critical mirror about things that are going wrong or just very, very intuitive, being a sensitive kind of, um, being that sort of takes in this information and processes the information on the inside and then gives something back that that person might not even understand what it is. It's just like, uh, again, the shamanic uh, approach, you know, uh, feed the shaman with information or problems or emotions and see what comes back. Because the shaman has, as his or her job in the tribe, to process uh, and see what's good or bad, 
usable uh, or not in this process of tribal survival. Mm. Yeah, and that, that that's that's so fascinating, man. But then, then we get that gets in even potentially, and again, people, this is me taking Carl here. Don't blame Carl. Because then you get <laughs> then you get into um even like stranger ideas such as egregores, which the fields of morphic resonance could just be a different way of conceptualizing the, the egregore and, yeah. and the culpa and the, yeah. the joined thought forms and all of these things. Because then the question comes, and I've actually seen this question asked by people who come upon these ideas and kind of just run with them a lot of times out of fear, I think which could be justified. I don't know. I don't know all the answers to anything. But like the question then becomes, let's assume this idea that there are these fields of morphic resonance or egregores, topas, whatever. There are these disembodied conscious forces that inform and influence each other and inform us. And that is what um, shamans are connecting to. The question then becomes like, is it one monolithic force or are there various forces? And do some of those various forces not have our best interest in mind? Do some of them, they do have our best interest in mind? Because people look at these events, like the Jack Parsons one has become a big thing in just like like internet lore, Mm -hmm. where people are really ascribing a lot of significance to the whole Babylon working thing and saying that it opened up this rift because that's when the UFO, modern UFO thing Right. And so it is a very interesting like I I tend to stay away from those things because they become very polarized. It, it's yeah. a polarized world yeah. that I, I prefer to stay away from. But it is interesting to wonder if there are these other intelligences using people. And we don't know when they when they give us these ideas. Yeah. We love them, but we don't know where they're actually taking us. Right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 that's a huge, huge topic. And I think I've drifted from um, uh, being on one side and now I'm on another side. And it's basically, I used to be uh, quite open-minded and accepting um, of, of, you know, what's called in, you know, in the Thelemic lore, you know, greater natural uh, intelligences, discarnate intelligences, uh, call it whatever, um, and uh, and my take on that some time ago was like, why not? You know, I was very, uh, I would say, inspired and, and influenced in in uh, Kenneth Grant's approach mm. in the sense that he was so very very open minded, uh, and he had worked uh, occultly, like worked with these things, going to different uh, mind frames and states of mind of uh, states of consciousness and explore these things. And then you have to take your hat off and say, that's good. Someone who's worked with it and they came up with this. So it is in a way, a kind of a proto scientific approach. However, um, uh, and then of course you have these things like with UFOs and other kinds of influence from, from the cosmos and, and all of that stuff. Uh, now I seem to be uh, fairly strictly on a very human side. That means uh, taking a psychological uh, stance or a psychological grid or matrix through which I look at these things. And and if we just you know stop by the Parsons thing for a little while, and so we can disseminate because I, I know what it's grown to and it's become mythic. And that's something that can happen when culture takes on mythic stories and and sort of tweak them, give them the turbo injection by TV series, you know, uh, books about um, all these things. Um, And that can basically happen when something is in the right place at the right time. And also if it carries mythic proportion, which is what happens, you know, when the rocket scientist gets blown up. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's involved with the big bad cult. Uh, mm. I'm not talking about the OTO. I'm talking about the other, <laughs> you know, the other cult that stemmed from this uh, friendship and, and environment. So, of course, that's fascinating enough for people to become wildly interested in it. And then you have fictional renditions of it and thereby grows. And now we have it's an actual uh, living, fairly contemporary myth. But basically what happened was, was just... Uh, um, I don't know, strictly psychological processes where you have the, this environment that was the original Thalamic environment in, in California. Uh, very few 
people had actually met Crowley. Some had been in Chefalu, the Abbey of Thelema, and they came to California and sort of uh, were there as repositories or representatives in a way. And the OTR was there, so they worked on the Gnostic Mass. And, and uh, it's a very, very liberal uh, environment in terms of actual uh, sexual activities. I would say also uh, drug experimentation, just being you know, free spirited individuals like we're used to today in a way. Thinking proto it's more hippies. Like, proto hippies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, proto hippies. Uh, but then, of course, you have this thing where it always goes sour, right? You know, someone steals someone else's girlfriend, you know, and the person who's so fucking liberal can't take it and they become angry <laughs> and disgruntled and, you know, call each other names and it turns into a conflict. <laughs> or someone, lend, you know, borrows or lends someone $10 and it becomes a huge disaster. Or someone, borrows someone else's sailing boat and takes off with a lover. And that becomes like something that is now cultic proportions in this thing called the Babylon working, whatever that was. We don't really know. We can read the manuscripts and stuff like that. But maybe it was just really highly intelligent, but also high strung individuals trying to be much more liberal than their own inherent morals mm. actually could deal wow. with. So they had a kind of a... Um, uh, what do you call it, an overheating or a short-circuiting. Uh, and then it became so fascinating because they were in an environment of very fanciful creativity. So lots of science fiction writers, Hubbard was one of them, uh, perhaps not the best one, probably not the best one, but still <laughs> he was, you know, and he came up with these concepts and, and um, maybe he had the most cynical uh, attitude toward how to apply something on, on the greater scale. Whereas I think uh, Thelemites of uh, that era, and perhaps now also, they're much more, you know, tribal in that sense. We do our own thing. It might be good for the rest of the world, but we're doing our thing here. I think uh, Hubbard wanted to monetize. And I think he saw in these people uh, what was happening. Uh, there was a great need, again, for individuation to become clear to become free of old remnants of father and mother and, and uh, authority, society, old cultures, religion. So he, he marketed that and did it in a good way. Uh, then, of course, what happened is very, very interesting. Uh, of course, fodder for conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, Parsons blew up. He'd been this really explosive guy and helping actually to make that rocket fuel uh, for... Um, whatever it's called, Jet Propulsion Laboratories. Uh, and um, amazing. So when people die young, he was fairly young, then they become some. It's like the 27 club in rock music. You know, when someone right, dies right. at age 27, you know, it's like instant mythic uh, potential. Or, or, you know, you, they catapulted into some kind of status simply because of the fact that they're dead. You know, right, right. And, then, and then you have, interestingly enough, Cameron, you know, the, the great uh, artist who was, was uh, Parsons' uh, uh, lover, uh, carried on in the OTO environment and also afterwards, being like a little beacon of Thelema, influencing uh, Kenneth Anger, mainly, the filmmaker, uh, who, you know, carried on, became like an ambassador of Thelema through his, his life and through his films that are just so remarkable and who was one of the key people who inspired me to become involved with the OTO for 30 years, mm. for instance. So it is, you can see how these trails of influence and inspiration um, are fairly new, but they really work in reality. And mm. some people, depending on, you know, what kind of, you know, uh, person you are, some people take it on and create worldwide uh, money-making, racketeering uh, movements, and otherwise uh, other people are fine in being like in their own solitary sphere, like like anger. But but they both have huge influence, both these spheres. Mm. I think the problem is that when there's no one left alive to tell the real story, then it's you know uh, everything is up for grabs in terms of myth making, right. and there you have a lot of conspiracy theories. Um, uh, waiting to happen. And again, to just tie this in with the UFO stuff too, uh, I think uh, it's a psychological need for an invisible kind of authority, an invisible kind of guidance, because people feel 
I don't know, uh, disenfranchised. They don't feel strong in themselves because usually people with a strong core, a strong fundament of individuation know, they know what they want to do in life. They are working it. They are very happy. They feel uh, that they are living, leading meaningful lives. They rarely spend any time with conspiracy theories or UFOs or discarnate intelligences. They're just very happy to be alive and work. <laughs> Right. And when I talked to Mark Stavish, he actually said, um, he said, so what if there are UFOs? Who cares? You still have to pay the bills. You still have to take care of your family. You still have to like, it, yeah. it, it, it's funny because it was so dismissive. But then I really thought about it. I was like, you know what? He's right. Like yeah. you would, you would still have to be the best person that you can be. You would still have to be the most loving, giving person. Yeah. That you can be. All these things, mm -hmm. there would just be UFOs in the sky. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. like really, what, what does it matter? But um. Yeah. So it's very interesting because you now say, uh, did, did I interrupt you? Do you want to say something? No, no I was just going to say that, that um, uh, the psychological needs we have, they're different from person to person. Some can, can give it the, like the, what do you call it? The first, um, uh, first person form. So I do this, I experience this, uh, I am happy, I do this. Other people might come from another background where there's a need of a third person thing. You know, mm -hmm. we have a force, you know, this angel gives me the power to be this thing. Uh, this this demon or this uh, discarnate intelligence gives me the power to do this. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's terminology, right? You know, uh, as long as, you know, the outcome is conducive to something that feels good and meaningful, then it really doesn't matter. You could call it a like gobbledygook or whatever. Uh, as long as it, you know, has that function of pushing you onwards to finding greater meaning. Hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And that's why I'm always I always try to be honest with myself, and with everybody else. I have a very deep interest in these topics. Yeah. And I can intellectually defend my thoughts, but I never try to obfuscate the fact that I am one of those people who is driven by an intense need to feel that there is some kind of meaning. I don't like the idea of life without meaning. It bothers me. Yeah. And, um, and so I remain honest with myself so that I don't allow my mind to get away from me, you know? Yeah. But um, so you, you now you're in this place now where you think all these things, it's, it's purely psychological. And so something I'm curious about, you talk about, um, because there are many people in this this sphere, esoteric sphere, whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it, who share a similar idea. And there's something I've always been personally curious, maybe confused about, which is, all right, I'm all for personal self-transformation. I'm all for achieving my goals and being the best self. But the thing mm -hmm. is, for me, all that is, is waking up, writing in my to-do list, to list and staying focused on what I need to do, and I can make my goals happen. Mm -hmm. In this, in a worldview where all of this is purely psychological, is there really a need for these elaborate ceremonies, like the people who are ceremonial magicians and do mm -hmm. all, all of these things? Is there really a need for it? Or do you think it is uh, going too far? Yeah, no, I think there absolutely think there's a need for it because there is this other aspect and that's magic. And that's something I feel is absolutely necessary because if we are only these sort of you know 10 steps 10 uh, steps to become a more rational more effect efficient human being and you know be the best you can be and all these you know slogans uh, that that now you know mean really nothing we can all train ourselves you know mentally whatever uh, to become more efficient but be efficient in what it still ties in with what we want to achieve in life that gives us meaning. How do we get to that knowledge? It's again, it's not strictly by cogitation, you know, saying, do I like this? Yes. Do I like that? No. You know, you can come a long way by doing that, but a human being is much more complex than that. We have emotional aspects. We have sexual aspects. We have uh, philosophical aspects. Uh, everyone does. And to get to that point of insight or some kind of epiphany, uh, it doesn't need to be dramatic. It can come, for instance, in uh, meditative states. It can come in psychodramatic, meaning like ritual states. Uh, it can come in uh, psychedelic states of mind. Basically, you need to leave the, the everyday frame of mind. You need to transcend it 
not necessarily transgress it, but you need to transcend it. Uh, and that is an inherent part of, uh, let's call it like psychic hygiene. It, we need to do that to be healthy. Just the same way that we, you know, we take in new nutrition in order to strengthen the vehicle in a way. We also need to uh, change our mind frame um, and give it more nutrition so that it can process in a good way. And I'm not only talking about like uh, material, like sugar stuff. We need to transcend it, uh, give it a little bit of a jolt in order for it to become truly uh, creative and come up with these ideas and what if scenarios that we need as sort of um, springboards or um, uh, reflective fields uh, so that we can uh, continue to, to uh, develop, not simply as, you know, uh, I can do 100 push-ups, next month I can do 120 push-ups, or I'm going to have a promotion at my job, I have to create these many whatevers in order to please the boss. You know, that, that's, that's the true like, materialistic aspect of success. And that's not a bad thing, not at all. However, you need to still find that you're in the right place at the right time. You have to find meaning. And that, I, I, I don't believe, comes from that kind of uh, rational approach. That's, that's the thing. You need to go irrational to, to go deeper into yourself and see what it is you are and who you are. Hmm. That, that's, that's fascinating insight, man. And so there's a question I asked, uh, we're coming up on an hour, I won't keep you too much longer, but there's a question I asked Miguel Connor I, I, uh, of Ian Byte Gnostic Radio. I'm curious your thoughts on it. So we have, and I saw you were on his show. Uh, yes. Yeah. So I didn't get a chance to listen to that one yet, but I, I love Miguel. I think he's got one of the best shows out there. But um, so we have the what can look, broadly be characterized as a, a Gnostic viewpoint and then like a a mainstream religious viewpoint, right? Mm -hmm. And so in, in the question I'm thinking of, it could be applied even just to um, like rationality versus the individuation and the irrationality that you just talked mm -hmm. about, right? Yeah. Talking about just broad categories of thought. And so there's this, like you, you are very big in individuation. Like that's, that's what yeah. a human being needs to do, which yes. I agree with. I 100% agree with like, we are here to individuate, find out what we are and then become that as fully yes. as we can. But so it occurs to me, or it seems to me that there's something inherently destabilizing when you do that. Right. Which is fine. Like I've lived my whole life like that. I don't have any desire to live any other way, but can a whole society really stay, you know, coherent and um, connected and stable if if everybody was pursuing these inherently destabilizing and, and often like very chaotic um, self uh, tools of self transformation? Like it almost seems like as annoying as this is to say, it almost seems like we have to have a base of people that are happy just doing the day-to-day -day because they give the stability that allows the psychonauts to explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And uh, I'm just curious what you think about that because it seems sad to me that that might be the case. But um, mm -hmm. so do you think that's the case? Like, could you envision a world where everybody went into radical self-individuation? Mm. Yeah, I could. But of course, that, that's a, like an ideal or a hypothesis that we will never see because it's just too far out. Right. Uh, right. I, I do believe that, uh, of course... Uh, uh, I, I believe in natural stratification. I do not believe in uh, enforced stratification in any way. But I mean, people are different. People have different uh, capacities. And uh, one way of accepting that is simply to individuate and realize, this is what I'm good at. I'm not going to be like uh, Jack Parsons. I'm not going to be this. I'm going to work with this because it fills my life with meaning. And, and actually, I, I mean, I've met a lot of those people who have completely, you know, unglamorous jobs. Um, there's no, you know, uh, fascinating uh, romantic trajectory, you know, but they're just very happy because they know they're in the right place. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, maybe it's the psychonauts, those who are feeling such a, uh, a dramatic drive to go beyond. Maybe they are the most neurotic ones with the most problems. You know, right, maybe right. maybe that's why they are so um, 
aggressively wanting to individuate in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be the case. So, of course, one could never uh, presuppose that, that everyone's the same because that's not the case. We sh- share some very basic traits, but then on an individual level, we're very, very, very different. Uh, and that has to do with culture and, you know, uh, capabilities, genetics, a lot of things, uh, general cultural permissiveness. Um, so I think it might, it's a very interesting philosophical uh, idea that, that you bring to the table here. Uh, but I do think that uh, it simply m- might be enough for a culture to say that it's okay go ahead, you know, because I, I, I think that we, we're experiencing that. It was certainly in Sweden. I think you're doing that in the U.S. too. Basically, I was the Western liberal sphere. You can do it, you know, to the extent of your capability. Mm-hmm. And that could be intelligence. It could also be financial power, you know. Uh, but um, there's really no one trying to hammer us down with, with violence if we feel a bit like a nail, you know, if right. we protrude from the board, no one is really going to hammer us down. They might say uh, with some kind of, uh, I don't know, leering, uh, I don't know, misanthropic kind of attitude. No, you'll never succeed. You better stay where you are. You'll never do that. But that's usually just their own frustration uh, talking through them. Whereas, in fact, if you have someone who's really keen on getting ahead, they will be inspired by themselves, um, you know, feeling, you know, taking original inspirations perhaps from um, uh, an ancestor or someone else that they've encountered, or it could be someone who's sort of like uh, old and deceased, someone from a book, you know, can lead to many interesting things. That's why you have to have this open mind and take in new information, new data, basically, to constantly have this process. Individuation doesn't lead to a fixed goal. It doesn't, you know, end, there's no end line. I think that you have to take that into consideration also. I'm a different person now than when I was 23, yet I am the same person also. It's it's, uh, intriguing. But there, I think that the best thing that a society as such could do is simply to say that, we are open for our citizens or members to become um, as happy as they can be based on their own uh, uh, potential. Mm. Yeah. But that requires self-knowledge and that requires honesty. And that's something that, that we're not really taught to be. You know, right, right. on the contrary, the Western uh, sort of uh, liberal democracies, it's like, um, it's not encouraging us to tell the uh untruth <laughs> but there's a very gray area sort of in between the lines there where you get ahead by being quite manipulative and, right. and i'm thinking for instance of um you know everyone knows justice but not everyone knows the legal system you know there's this like this wow. whole army of, of lawyers you know speaking right. like these interpreting the law whereas in fact justice is fairly simple isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's uh, one example of how we can create um, ball and chain of our own intelligence in a way, our own complexity. Mm. Right. Man, Carl, all right. So like I said in our email, I, I have <laughs> pages and pages of notes from your book. I could I could ask a million questions, but you promised me an hour. You get, or I asked you for an hour. You gave me an hour. And uh, you, I have it. I appreciate it. So before we wrap up, and um, this was this was fascinating. Man. I love this conversation. Yeah. In all sincerity, this was just fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and uh, let's let's do it again sometime. You know. Oh yeah. Oh, thank you very much, Carl. I would love that, man. That 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 would be awesome. This is the kind of stuff I love talking about. That's the whole reason I started this project. Me man. too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so okay. In addition to uh, Source Magic, do you have any other projects that you would like to share? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I just literally just a couple of weeks ago finished uh, the manuscript for for the next book, uh, which is uh, quite interesting. It's uh, been a very interesting process. It's a magical autobiography in a way, Mm. uh, focusing not on everything in my life, but specifically the the magical meetings, the magical development, the magical, you know, twists and turns with a lot of interesting uh, meetings and facts and many of which I had forgotten about, but that's that's a good thing about being an 
I was going to say a hoarder, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, I changed it in my mind to say archivist, archivist. <laughs> You know, uh, so I found a lot of stuff, old correspondence, postcards, letters, even faxes that I've kept. Uh, and that's been invaluable. Plus diaries, of course, like I've gone through, I don't know, probably 50 or more volumes of diaries from mm. 1988 and, and onwards. So that's been very rewarding. And that's, uh, I think, it's a very fun read because it's uh, it's not an attempt to mythologize something it's just what happens why does this kid from sweden become so enamored with the occult and why does he spend his life uh, working with these things and writing about these things you'll find the answer to that in that book <laughs> oh fantastic i can't wait and also the the trap art channel that's your channel right yeah exactly okay, yeah. yeah it's all you on there i just wasn't sure if like a fan put it together or if that was actually your no channel. no uh, the trapar film youtube channel is uh basically me and my wife my wife has a, a podcast that's also video called rendering unconscious so she has a lot of material there she talks to psychologists and psychoanalysts and artists and stuff and i put up um basically films i'm making and lectures which yeah, I enjoyed. I watched, I watched a lot of your material. It's great. And everybody out there, I'll put the link in the description below this. Go check out his uh, channel, man. It's fascinating stuff. Thank you. But uh, All right, man. Carl, thank you so much, man. And uh, best of luck to you. And uh, hopefully we will talk again soon. I really appreciate it. We will. Thank you very much for having me. Take care, sir.